Last week, here on Sunday, I did Ezekiel chapters 1 through 5, uh, which is an incredible vision of what some have called a UFO, but it's an image of the glory of God. Wednesday night, I did chapters 6 and 7, which honestly, uh, the end of chapter 5, I didn't even get into this last week, deals with cannibalism. You go into chapter 6 and 7, and it is like reading something out of a horror film today. Uh, what you have is you have a series of prophets that are being um, just really empowered by the, whole, by, by the Spirit of God during this time. You have Daniel, you have Jeremiah, you have Habakkuk, and they're all, they're all giving instruction to the people. They're all giving some insight to the children of God, the, the, the Israelites during this period. And they're all referencing the exile. They're all referencing the destruction of Jerusalem. And then when you read Ezekiel, Ezekiel is the one that gets down into the nitty gritty of exactly what it looks like. And just so that you don't get this picture, it wasn't, it wasn't as if Nebuchadnezzar came in to exile the, the, the Jewish people. And so he was like, hey guys, listen, we're having a meeting. Everybody come here. We're going to be moving you guys. After everybody is gone and safe, we have a group that's going to do a controlled demolition of your homes and just leave everything nice and tidily flattened. It's not what happened. The people were at home. They were doing life. And the army came in and ransacked the place, killing uh, uh, a third of them is what Ezekiel says by the sword, right? Then some are taken off into exile and some are left and they're left with nothing. So, 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 uh, pestilence is what comes on them, right? They, they, there's disease, there's no food. And, and so Ezekiel is the one that kind of is, is getting into the nitty gritty for us. He's painting the picture of just how terrible an environment this exile is when God allows Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans to come in and wipe out life as they know it. Now, we're going to be beginning in chapter 8 in just a moment, but I want to preface something because I think a lot of times we can be inside of the Old Testament and we can think to ourselves, ah, you know, that was, that's not really for us. I want to point out that, that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was, was factual, Okay, he, he taught out of the Old Testament on 14 different occasions. And each time that he taught from the Old Testament, he taught it as historical fact. It wasn't like, you know, there's this really cool little uh, children's story and most of it's made up. But here are some little things I want to point to. They weren't illustrations. Jesus himself, right, and, and those that are recording these actions and these teachings of Jesus said that he, he believed the Old Testament to be fundamentally true. In fact, he, he claimed that he was the one coming to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And this is what set him apart from all of the others that had claimed to be the Messiah. Now, Jesus is uh, uh, going to die, he's going to be buried, he's going to resurrect, and then he is going to ascend. And he tells the, 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 those that are following him that I'm returning. There will be a day when I return. And, and, and I just, I want to say that like, when we look at these stories in the Old Testament, right, D Daniel comes into his own somewhere probably around age 15, and when he goes into the lion's den, he's in his 80s. So 
we read a handful of, of moments, right? Glimpses into Daniel's life. We compress them all into his 20s and we retell that story, right? Because in Sunday school, when, when, when you were little and they had the little felt board, they didn't show 80-year-old uh, uh, Daniel coming out with a walker into the lion's den. He was a young strapping man that went into the lion's den. And, and yet that's, that's not historically what the text teaches. And so we have to remember that God's timing is, is almost always in giant, there's giant gaps in the sequence, right? And so uh, Jesus says, I'm returning. And, and each, each generation is to live as if it's happening in their generation. And then there will be a generation that will be alive when Jesus does return. And th this is pretty fundamental to the faith uh, of what it looks like to be a Christian. Look at what it says here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We sang about this just a moment ago, right? Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, right? So John is writing and he says this, Again, very fundamental to the faith, and that is that if we claim to be children of light, but we walk in darkness, so if I claim to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, but I just, in my life, walk in the darkness, it says what? It says that we lie and we do not practice the truth. And so I, I preface getting into these next chapters with this because I want to make sure that we don't feel like we're just exempt from everything. Like that is a problem for me when I am navigating conversations with Christians is that for the most part, we each look at our own lives and find the exceptions, right? The, the exemptions. And so we'll read through something that's really tough, really difficult, and we'll say, ah, you know, well, nah, God doesn't do that anymore. God doesn't think like that anymore. God doesn't talk like that anymore. God's not at work like that anymore. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every single thing that we find within the Old Testament is just a thumb down on us, all right? But I, I, I want to ask the question, is it possible that at some point in your life, you thought to yourself or a pastor said to you, oh, God doesn't do that anymore. God will never do that anymore. And you just believe that without actually getting into the word and discovering whether or not that lines up with scripture. So today is going to be on the day of wrath. And it's not the day of wrath in the sense of that final day when Jesus is returning. No, this is the day of wrath when the children of Israel will go into exile. So we're going to begin in Ezekiel chapter 8, and I'm going to cover several chapters again. Uh, I have a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown that will be on Facebook today. If you want to get it, I'm not going to cover all of it. Uh, but let's look here in verse 1 of chapter 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. I just want to point out that we are six years later, six years from the time that Ezekiel begins his ministry. Why? Why would we point that out? I just want you to understand that there can be giant, what feels like eternities of gaps of time in your life between when you might feel like God's saying something to you and then when it's implemented. And I, I just... 
I can't tell you how many times I have dealt, especially with young men who have a call on their life, and because they are not preaching to, to the thousands, to the multitude within a year's time of their salvation and their calling, that they ultimately just give up and they themselves end up walking into some other area of life and they miss out on what it is that God has for them. It just takes time. Sometimes God will speak to you and you'll have a dream, you'll have a vision, you'll know, hey, this was God. He showed up and, and, and he said this about me and it might take years, it might take decades for that promise to be fulfilled. So we are six years later. Verse two, then I looked and behold a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. I'm not again reading every verse. I wanted to point this one out because I wanted to remind you that that the writer uses this word like for our benefit because he can't quite tell you exactly what it is that he's looking at. So he's giving you some type of illustration, some type of connection. It's, it's like this. And you'll find this, especially when you're looking into prophetic uh, uh, moments of scripture, they'll be using this word like because they can't quite tell you exactly what it is that they are seeing. Verse three, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north uh, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And you, I, you read through this verse right here and, and you think, okay, jealousy that that God is provoked to jealousy we look at jealousy as being something that has negative connotations right we should not be jealous so I wanted to pause because I didn't want to create a moment where you think well God's filled with some type of sinful uh, wrath or sinful mindset this this word which provokes to jealousy here in the Hebrew, it, it better translates probably contextually for the, the Hebrews who would have been reading it and hearing it is to purchase, to recover, or to redeem. So when we're jealous for something, right, it's, it's about this longing that I wish that I had it, right? And, and, and in the context of this, that which provokes to jealousy, it is about a longing in God to be able to redeem, to bring something back to him. And this just, I want to say that when we look at words like this, it's, we have to speak to the immutable, the, the immutable nature of God. What does that mean? That means that God is consistent. You and I, we might break every law in the book to get a wounded child to the hospital, right? And, and it would be a, a great you know, illustration to say, well, hey, if you would break every law in the book to get your child to the hospital to save their lives, why wouldn't God? Well, because God is immutable. God does not sin. And so God would not break the law. God would not do that, okay? God is not bound to the, the, the nature that we find ourselves living in, all right? And this is why Jesus came in the flesh. He paid the price, right? Instead of us having to pay the price. And so God's nature is a nature that is consistent. We talked about this in the book of Jonah, right? What did Jonah say when uh, he's talking with God and he's angry after he shared the, the, the prophecy to Nineveh? He says, I knew that if I went and told them what you had to say, that you would forgive them. 
right? Because he knew the very nature of God, that if, if, a, if a man or a woman is to repent, God is faithful to forgive them. He is consistent. And when we listen to people who say, oh, I've done things God could never forgive, right? That is humanity speaking through a situation, and there is never any evidence of God operating like that. God has always been faithful to forgive those that have a repentant heart. Let's skip down to verse six. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will, uh, uh, you will see still greater abominations. I wanted to point this out because I think a lot of times we think in terms of sin as being this thing that pushes us from God, but God says that it's their sin that pushes me from them. And so when we are living in a lifestyle of sin, it's not necessarily that we are walking further and further away from God. It's that we are pushing God further and further away. And, and think about the, the, the nature of relationships when distance becomes a factor right? Uh, Carmen and I, we met when we were 13 years old. If you've been around us for any period of time, you know this. We are freaks of nature. Uh, we love each other. We celebrated 20 years of marriage, and my kids daily beg us to not kiss in front of them, uh, not to hold hands, not to be all ooey-gooey. And, you know, to be honest, we love to terrorize and torment them, so we do it anyway, right? It's one of the few benefits of being a parent. Uh, but we celebrated 20 years of marriage. We got married when we were 20 years old. I, I'm not saying that like I'm recommending everybody find somebody when they're 13, gets married when they're 20, and that it's going to work out because we're all different. But Carmen and I, we're, we're freaks of nature. But during our time of dating, when we started college, we we started in different states. She, We were both living in Alabama. She went to Missouri. I went to Tennessee. And as you can imagine, there was a tremendous amount of distance between us, and there was no high-speed internet, and there was no free long distance. That meant that every time that I picked up the phone to call her, it was 25 cents a minute to talk to her. And, and you might think to yourself, well, what's a quarter, right? She, she's worth it. Well, just think about how much time you would spend talking with somebody that you loved and wanted to marry and it, translate that into a quarter a minute and you will feel the burden of $1,000 a month that I felt while she was there. And that burden sat on me. So what did that mean? That meant I went to college, right? And I worked a job to pay my car insurance and my food and an incredibly high phone bill so that I could talk to her regularly. And even though I did that, there was still a lot of stress and tension in that long distance relationship. And long distance relationships are not easy. I'm not saying that they're not impossible, right? We, we have a, a, a number of, of service men and women and they end up being deployed or transferred and separated from their families. And many of them are able to do that separation and be faithful and come back together and, and, and be a family, right? But it is difficult for some. And I just wanna say this, that as you live in sin, right? Especially if you identify that there's sin in your life and you're walking in this darkness, the further and further that you are pushing God from you, I just want you to understand that you are creating stress and tension in the relationship. And what, what might be good for you might be to just have a constant comfort of the Holy Spirit now becomes a moment of falling on your knees and pleading for God to show up. 
And so God says there's a, there's a distance that's being created here, and it's because of the acts, the actions of these people. And there's tremendous effect when we are talking about distance. Let's skip down to verse 12 here in chapter 8. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. This is odd, right? He talks about their room of pictures. And I, I thought to myself, I thought, well, what, what is it that, that these leaders, right, the leaders within the quote-unquote church in this period of time, what is it that they might be doing? And, and most commentators, and, and of course, they honestly don't know because this is not normal language throughout Scripture, but it had, it had to have something to do with imagery that we see inside of some type of private place. And oftentimes, uh, it would draw you to the conclusion of some type of idolatry, probably idols. And then in turn, and I, and, and I think that this is one of those things that really connects this, that can drive this home for us, is that the majority of these idols, right, these gods that they worship, in some form or fashion included some type of sexual depravity. And so you get this image of idols being made so that they would be in private where nobody can see them, and they are engaged in some type of practice to worship these gods. And God says that this is bad, but, but the abominations that even the spiritual leaders will commit, will, down there, it'll be even greater. And I'm going to be honest, like, like I'm reading through this and I'm thinking to myself, like, this scares me. This scares me to think that, that a, a, a group of people who, who were led out of slavery with a fire at night, a cloud during the day, 40 years their meals were provided for them. They came into a land that was given to them, and God has shown up and manifested and shown victory in their lives generation after generation, and yet somehow each generation has walked farther and further from God to now there is a corruption that is filling the temple, the religious leaders. And so it made me ask the question, well, what was their doctrine? What was it that they would have been teaching? And so, you know, you dig into a lot of history and you read a lot of commentaries and ultimately like the consensus here is that there was a teaching that was uh, to conform to sin. And then the idea being that, well, you know, they say in some of these writings that this is sin, but it's probably not really sin. There's a rebuke of prophetic warning. So when a prophet comes out and says, God says, repent of your wicked ways, as a whole, the religious leaders said, no, God's not saying that. He's saying the exact opposite. I'll, I'll prove this to you in just a moment. And then just a general compromise of teaching. Just a breakdown of the way that the word of God was being given as instruction. 
And this is affirmed as a cultural perspective in the next verses. Look here at verse 14 and 15. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, right, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. So he's at the at the outside of the temple, and there are women, and they are weeping to this Tammuz. And, and Tammuz is a Mesopotamian god, and yet another in a long and distinguished list of fertility gods. These secular nations around them, right? When I say secular, I mean just separated from the god of Scripture. Pagan is probably an even better terminology. All of their gods constantly come back around sex. Historically speaking, this is their obsession, is how to engage and incorporate sex into the way that they worship. And it stands in complete and total contradiction of the instruction that God gives. And what are they doing? These are people who are at the temple and they're weeping to another God. And he says, son of man, right? Ezekiel, have you seen, have you seen people who are all torn up that are devastated in their reactions to what is ultimately just a pagan ritual? You'll see worse than this to come. I want to share something with you. David Platt wrote about J.R. Tolkien, that Tolkien combined his extraordinary talent for storytelling and uh, philology to communicate conservative and Catholic values and images through his captivating fictional tales of hobbits, elves, men, and dwarves. Perhaps you're familiar with The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, right? Um, J.R. Tolkien himself said that The Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Now, he says in no uncertain terms that it's not like a piece-by-piece -piece type of allegory like what C.S. Lewis did when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. But what he did was he took something that uh, these fundamentals of the faith and he kind of created this story and, and put it out there so that it could be something that allowed us to dream and engage with our imaginations and not leave the realm of what is responsible or responsibility with our faith. And Amazon has got the rights to this. And I, we see that secular values are historically always paired with non-biblical views of sexuality. And, and Amazon is an organization that we order our supplies through. Uh, I'm, I would venture to say that probably the majority of us in this room have used Amazon or currently use Amazon. But uh, was reading yesterday that uh, they have put out a casting agency of the, uh, I mean, one of the casting agencies for the series has put out an open call for actors who must be comfortable with nudity. In addition, Amazon Studios has hired an intimacy coordinator and the writer and producer from the Game of Thrones, Brian Cogman, has officially been hired as a consulting producer. Can I just tell you, like, like this doesn't, this shouldn't shock anybody in here. And I'm going to tell you right now, like as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, first and foremost, when an organization, right, wants to take something, a work that somebody who is just a 
God-loving individual, and they want to take it and spin it in a direction that it was never created for. Like That is a great picture of a society that has issues. And, and my problem here is, it, it, like, like hearing about this, reading this, is, is I'm thinking to myself, like, like wh- why are we not broken over these things? And these are the same types of things Ezekiel's dealing with. Ezekiel's dealing with a group of people who are just open to this type of sexuality and, and, and sexual lifestyle, and they're infusing, they're integrating it into their practices. And I'm just reading this, and I'm thinking, man, there's so much that feels so familiar in our society today with what was happening in Ezekiel. And it, it, it causes us to have to answer this question. Who are the secular leaders of today? Who are the ones that are caught up in, in, in the ideology that does not respect the faith? I'm not going to make that list for you. I think that that's something that you need to be thinking about, though. Skip down to verse 18. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they are, though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Chapter 19, I mean, chapter 9, verse 1. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. The image we get from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 9 is that something begins to, there's an upheaval, and the people begin to realize all of a sudden that the things that had been prophesied were true, and and he's seeing a glimpse into the future, and that they cry out to God, right? But God is crying out already. And he's calling out, and he says, now is the time. Skip to verse 3 here in chapter 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And so what, is, what do we see here? We see uh, uh, an angel, perhaps this is Michael, because the description of what he looked like is very similar to what Daniel's description was, and Daniel calls that angel by name. We, Ezekiel does not. Perhaps it's Michael, and he is charged with identifying and marking those who are in sin. And put a mark on those that are not in sin, those who are, that they sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed. Think about this for a moment. He says, here's what I want you to do. I've called forth the executioners, and I want you to go, and I want you to mark the heads. This is a a mark of protection over those that sigh and groan over all the abominations. This is a group of people, and we're going to find out in a moment it's a very small group of people, which is why it's a remnant, who actually will listen to the word 
When it says that something was sin, they saw it as sin. And when they saw others participating in sin, it hurt. And the problem was, and this is, this is the problem, is that the elders, they were the ones that were justifying these abominations. And so that makes its way down to, to, to all of us, right? Like, like when you have your spiritual leaders that are beginning to take and create doctrine that accepts any and every type of person, irregardless of repentance and change in their lives, what does that do? That begins to water down what is the, 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 the church as a whole. And that's, that's exactly it's exactly what was happening here. And it was about this idea of acceptance outside of their faith. They wanted to be a part of these outlying communities. Verse 8, And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? This is, this is it. Ezekiel is shocked at just how few are being marked. He is shocked at just how few are actually being marked to be preserved. Now, I want to pause and I want to just say something about um, heaven and hell for just a moment and eternal judgment that just because the wrath of God was poured out here on these people, this is, not, this is not an indication that all these people were voided out of heaven, okay? God says very specifically that the reason that his wrath was poured out here, right, was for the preservation of the faith for future generations, and I don't have time to get into like a whole breakdown doctrinally on this, but, but this isn't always, the judgment of God in this sense of on flesh is not always a heaven and hell issue, but it's, it's always a sin issue. It's always a sin issue. And what does the scripture say? That the wages of sin is death. And what is that death? That death is this physical death. Go to Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. So we're back to the will, right? Uh, and the will is a deliberate image of revolution meaning that it's constantly moving. This is the nature of God. The nature of God is that he's constantly moving, right? And, and we see God is at work among his people in this scenario because it is time for revolution. Revolution is change, right? It is time for change. It is time for a generation to know that God does not tolerate sin. And, and, and this is less, this is... This is such a, a heavy teaching, I know, man. It's not, it's not full of giggles and laughs. This is not, um, the, the, the picture here for us is that when, when, when we understand that sin cannot be manifested and present in the presence of God, God is constantly at work in his nature because he loves us to help us be rid of sin. This was the whole idea of sacrifice and atonement. It's the reason that Jesus came. Sin is not something that will exist in the presence of God. And the ultimate goal 
for God is to get us into his presence. And that should be the ultimate goal of believers is to get into the presence of God. And so I will say that the immutability brings revolution without sin. And the reason I will point that out is because just, just because we hear the word revolution does not mean that God is behind it. Just because we're hearing the, 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 the song of change does not mean that God is behind it. When God brings change, it is to destroy sin, and it is never partnered with sin. It might control sin. This is what he told Habakkuk, right? He said, hey, I'm going to send the Chaldeans in to do the work. And Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 whoa. They're a completely godless, terrible group of people. And God says, yeah, and they are under my control. But God never calls us to partner with them and to do this work. Chapter 10 moves from a distant vision, and we get into this up-close and personal vision. So, so in chapters 1 through 3, we see the will within the will, and he's seeing the glory of God and the expanse. And then in chapter 10, it's all happening again. But now he's in the midst of it being called to scoop up these, these hot coals. It is happening right here and in the midst of where Ezekiel is standing. Go to chapter 11 verse 1, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them uh, Jezaniah, the son of Azur, and Pilatiah, the son of Benani. Prince, uh, they were princes of the people. So these are the leaders and politicians. Remember in the story of David that his son ends up uh, running away and fleeing uh, because he kills his brother. And then he, when he comes back, he goes and he sits at the city gates and he does this for years. And the scripture says he does this so that he can be a politician, so that he can sit there and manipulate the emotions of people for what reason? To gain their support so that he could overthrow his dad and be the king. And in fact, David ends up running out fearing for his life because Absalom, his son, has been effective at doing that. So this is the place where leaders, politicians, they came together and they sat because this is how they had influence over anybody that's coming and going. Now look here in verse 2. And he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel to this city. What does he say about these men? These men devise iniquity and give wicked counsel. So these leaders, right, that the people are entrusting are actually the ones that are devising these forms of iniquity. And God is pointing this to Ezekiel. He's showing him that these leaders are not to be trusted. They are ones who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. What does that mean? Right? So what are these ideas of iniquity? Very specifically, these are, this is what the iniquity is. The iniquity is, they said, that we do not need protection. The idea here is that they would use this language of being meat in a cauldron and that a cauldron is this 
iron pot and no, nothing's getting through it. And so when the meat was inside of the cauldron and the temperature was rise, the meat was safe from any body coming and taking it out. And this is what they said. They said, look, we know, we keep hearing people say, repent, God cares about these things, but we're telling you, you are perfectly fine. You do not need to worry about any change. Remember, Jeremiah has also been walking the streets of Jerusalem, telling them what? God is bringing in an army. You need to repent. Ezekiel is doing the same thing. And so here is the response of a group of people to Jeremiah's word. No, Jeremiah's crazy. Yeah, don't listen to the warnings. Don't listen to what's being said. We are perfectly safe. And God says that this group of people, they are sowing iniquity. They are deceivers. Verse 4, therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. To prophesy is to reveal, right? And so he is now getting an, an, a glimpse into the future. He's getting a glimpse into things that are to come. He's getting a glimpse into the very nature and character of individuals. And then God is saying, now I need you to go and say something about these things. And God's prophecy is a stark contrast to those who are the leaders of the city. God is going to send Ezekiel out to say the exact opposite of what the leaders and the politicians are saying. Verse 13, And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatia, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So why does this matter, right? He shows the same guy up there in the first few verses, and he says that they devise iniquity, and now this guy dies, Pelatia, and Ezekiel falls on his face, and he says, God, is, is everybody going to die? So Pelatia literally means Jehovah delivers. And so what Ezekiel is saying is that when the the person that is supposed to embody Jehovah delivers is an individual who is actually in sin and pushing people to sin, dies, he feels like there's no hope. Like, like how, how can the very embodied Jehovah delivers die and us expect for Jehovah to deliver? Can, can I just tell you, Ezekiel does not like any of this. This is not what Ezekiel wants to see happen because Ezekiel loves the people. He cares about them. That's why every time that he finds and he's shown more sin and more idolatry and more iniquity, things he had never noticed before, he is being more and more overcome with grief. But remember that to prophesy is to reveal. And what Ezekiel's responsibility is, is to be a prophet. Verse 17, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. This is God's response to Ezekiel's cry. Verse 18, and when they came there, they will, and when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. So God says, when they, I'm going to give them this land, and when they come and, and I return them back together, they will 
get rid of the things that are detestable in the sight of God. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. God sees that Ezekiel is feeling like things are pretty hopeless. And so he is falling on his face. And, and, and hear me, hear me with this real quick, okay? Especially like if you're a child of God and you love the Lord and all of what's happening in our world today matters to you, can I tell you, God hears your cries. And his response was not, Ezekiel, deal with it. I'm coming with more. He says, let me tell you, there is still hope. And I'm not done and there's going to be a group of people that are going to see this thing. They're going to see the consequences of sin, and they're going to be given a new heart. It is a single heart. It's not a heart that looks a little bit different from person to person. It is a heart, a very nature that sees the abominations of sin as unacceptable. He says, and they shall be my people. They're going to be my people. And this, this is the message that we all want to hear. This is what we want. This is what, this is what I want to preach on Sunday morning. I want to come in and tell you, yay, Jesus loves you. Go, love the world. But then in the responsibility of teaching all of Scripture, sometimes we pause and we get into these messages like we are right now in Ezekiel, where we get a glimpse into the fact that God says sin is just not acceptable. And I know that's contrary to what we want it to look like. He goes on here in verse 21 of chapter 11. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. He says that those who are going to just live in sin anyway, will, they'll pay the price for that sin. They walk in darkness, they're going to pay the price for that. It's, it's, the darkness is going to have its consequences. And up to this point, all of what we've heard has been prophetic, meaning that it hasn't yet happened. It's all been a glimpse for Ezekiel. We're going to get into chapter 12, and the, the responsibility that sits on Ezekiel is to now start going and telling the people what he has seen. Why is that? Because God warns those he loves. Can I tell you, this is what Paul says. Paul says it's not that God isn't real when I sin and lightning doesn't get me. He says, no, that's the very nature of God to continue to warn and to continue to cry out and to continue to be patient that we will respond. I mean, this is a nature that I can get. Like, I don't enjoy disciplining my kids, right? Like, I, I enjoy making them squirm and feel uncomfortable when I'm smooching on my wife, but I don't want to come in and, and discipline them, right? So what do we do? Like, we have conversation after conversation. We warn them, hey, stop with that attitude right now, and everything's going to be okay. Get, get control of your mouth right now. You don't want to be talking to your mom like that, right? That is, that is code for... Dad's about to go ninja on somebody. It's about to get real ugly in here. Don't talk to her like that, right? And then what happens in our own nature? Sometimes we listen to the warning and we go, yeah, that's a, probably not a good idea. I'll stop. 
And then sometimes we push on through. And as kids, we, we keep going. I remember one time, one of my children, I won't say who, I'll leave you to guess, uh, was with Carmen and Carmen told them to do something and they sat down and said, I will not. The answer is no. So Carmen picked up the phone, she called me. I was at work and I, I said, well, tell that child, see, I'm not even giving you genders there. I said, uh, so tell that child that uh, daddy's on his way home and they'd better have their act together. And they didn't. Warnings were warnings. And I had a kung fu moment with that child. And now from the, for that, that child, anytime that a moment like that arises and it's like, ah, the warning's enough. And this is what God's doing. God's sending Ezekiel out as a warning right? Here, here's what the future looks like. Here are what these events look like. Here's what is going on. This is, this is the intention of your leadership. This is the intention of this idolatry. When you see these people acting like this, here's what's going on in their heart. I need you to repent because I'm putting together a remnant. And that becomes Ezekiel's responsibility. So Ezekiel warns them on behalf of the Lord for years. And the I, I, only reason I keep talking about this time thing is I, I don't want you to think it's like, you know, like I, I've, I've heard people, uh, you know, they, we, we talk about, oh, when is this thing gonna happen? When is that thing gonna happen? And we'll just tie an arbitrary date to the election or we'll tie a date to, you know, some uh, political event or some, uh, you know, national disaster event, right? I mean, listen, Sometimes these things, these warnings are slow. They are not immediate, but then there is a buildup to where sometimes things just unfold. And look here in verse 21 of chapter 12. He says, so he's been doing this now. We're in chapter 12. He's been sitting here and he's been giving out this word. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, what is the proverb that you have about the land of Israel saying the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing? So he says, isn't there a proverb among you? Isn't there a saying that says something like the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing? So for years, Ezekiel is out here. He's telling them, let me tell you what God's saying. Let me show you what God's showing me. And the people have this proverb, ah, the days are long. It's going to be okay. That vision's not going to impact me. He says here, tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are near and the fulfillment of every vision. For there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. He says, the days are short. The visions that are from God are coming to pass. And clearly there have been others that have been saying things that are in contradiction to the prophets of God. And I told you at the beginning, I made this reference. I said that, that there are some group of people that are 
they're, con- they're conforming to sin and they are teaching a different doctrine, right? They are, they are false prophets that when, that when the prophet of God comes out and says, listen, you need to be warned. God is saying, repent. God is saying, go to prayer. God is saying, change the way that you're doing things. There, is a, there are others who are coming out and going, no, 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 God doesn't do that. God doesn't operate like that. God is filled with love. You're perfectly fine. It's going to be okay. And God says right here, there shall, no, there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And this is where we end chapter 12 today. It's by God coming and saying, listen, I have been warning, and I have been crying out, and I have been begging you. You, you say that you are my children. I claim you as my children. You cannot continue to conform to the patterns of the world. I was reading the, the, through the news last night, and I was really shocked, uh, but I think this is a good picture of, uh, of uh, some things that are going on in our world and the way that organizations are connecting. Um, but there was an event in Colorado, uh, it was a, a, a soup kitchen, and I'm not going to break down all the details on this. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it, it can be offensive, um, but I just wanted to name the, the groups that came together here. Um, you had uh, the Denver Communists, the Colorado Socialist Revolution, um, Anon Resistance Movement. I looked them up. That is the Anonymous Anarchists. Uh, Witch Denver. Uh, This is a group of witches that uh, have come together with the intention of standing against anybody that would stand against witches and ultimately uh, see an upheaval of the system. Uh, It's an anacronym uh, uh, that literally breaks down to them talking about coming against the system. a group called Help on Every Street and the Front Range Mutual Aid Network and a couple of others, including Antifa. And these are organizations that are coming together in our nation. And they, here's what I'm trying to tell you, is that these are groups that on their own, in their own information, are anti-Christian. This is anti-God. This is not like, man, they've got a really great cause we should rally behind. There isn't an overlap, right? And I'm passionate about this because I've got four children that have a land to be a part of, and I want grandkids. And there are organizations right now that are not just fighting for good social causes, but they are anti-God. They are anti-Christian in their own writings, and their own proclamations. The ultimate goal is to see not just religion, but specifically Christianity is named within those religions. Why? Because Christianity is so influential. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a prophet, so I'm not up here telling you that we're living out the days of Ezekiel. I, I, I just want to just point something out to you. I believe there are prophets for today, and I'm not here to give you a list of names on who they are, but I'm a pastor, 
if you're watching and listening right now, hopefully I'm your pastor and you'll hear my heart, that, that God said that, that I, go and mark those that moan and sigh against the abominations. What are the abominations? Like how much more abominable can we get than a group of people who say, we hate Christ. We need Christianity abolished. We need this idea of Jesus removed from the land. This isn't a battle cry in the physical. This is a battle cry in the spiritual to be on our knees and be praying and to stop conforming and to stop being pacifists when it comes to these people speaking in. They are not a voice that represents the faith. When I was a kid, I used to hear people talk about, you know, the, the occult, right? But I never saw the occult. I never saw a group of people who called themselves witches, like, like actually getting out and running a soup kitchen where they're feeding people in need, the very thing that we're called to be. And I'm 41 years old today, and I am watching these things happen right here in front of us, people who are saying that we are anti-Christian as a part of their message. And they're stepping in and they're trying to take the role of what we are called to be as the church. And I just can't help but feel like these abominations, as the scripture would call them, these ideas of idolatry that push people to other belief systems, whether pagan or secular, atheistic in nature, they are a problem. And they've got to be a problem in God's eyes. Can, 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 you, can, you, can you hear that? Can, can you feel that? That God might actually care that there could be another generation in the United States or any other part of the world, but this is the, this is the area that I'm responsible for, right? Like I have a little territory. It's this small building here, and I drive to and from my house, and so I have a handful of neighbors uh, or neighborhoods that I'm connected to. And so right here in this little territory in the state of Georgia, United States of America, do you think that God could ha take exception to the fact that there are people who might want to see Christ completely removed from the public conversation? And the problem is that Christ is the only hope. And if all we do is just sit down and just, oh, you know, it's okay, then we've got to be sharing the gospel like we have never shared the gospel before. We have got to be light and darkness like we have never been light before. And we cannot be timid and we cannot be intimidated even by those that might be among us. Like we are not an intimidatable group of people. We are not. We love Jesus and we love people of every ethnicity, race, we love them because God has called us to love them. And every one of them needs Jesus, just like every one of us. Let's stand to our feet as we close today. In these five chapters that we cover today, God is calling out the contradiction of the teachers. He is saying, you've got leaders here doing this, you've got leaders over there doing that, and none of them are doing the things that I have called them to do. They're not being who I've called them to be. And it is a, a, a cry in God's heart in this passage to repentance. That's what he wants. He wants repentance because it helps the individual draw near to him.
And I just feel like, man, I'm telling you, I feel like, like we, we need to be in a position of repentance and we need to be light in the darkness. Or that very language that God used there, because can I tell you when he was talking about the sin, he wasn't just talking in the position of an individual. He said that their sin drives me farther and farther away. And we do not need God any further away from the places that we call home than he might be right now. So I end just, I want you to be encouraged. As a child of God, you have all that that comes with. There's an authority in your life that comes with that. There's a hope and a security that comes with that. So so you don't have to walk out of here feeling all depressed and beat up. What I want you to do is walk out of here with the joy that comes from knowing God in your heart and a resolve to not let it be taken away. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you do. Lord, I come to you right now and I ask, God, that you would reveal to us in this season of time, Father, whether it is a a moment, a, a glimpse in time before Jesus returns, or even if it's a thousand years away, that right here, right now, that we would be aware of the work of the enemy, that we would be aware, that we would be in tune with with deception and lies, and that our spirits would be awakened to your truth. Let us not be those that ignore all warnings, but instead, Father, uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that we will know when you are speaking and what you are saying. I pray for boldness to be among our people, a boldness to share the gospel, a boldness to to tell people about Jesus. I pray for the leaders in our nation that do love you. God, you know their hearts tremendously more than we do. You know them better than we do. And Father, right now, you know the ones that are, 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 are seeking to serve you. Father, we pray that you would lift them up you would protect their leadership, and that you would lift them up into places of greater authority, that our nation would be like Nineveh and a place where the people are brought back to repentance and declaring the one true God. And you know, Father, I know that your nature is as such that if people will repent, you will forgive. We know that about your character, and we rejoice in that today. In your mighty name, Father, I pray for anyone that doesn't know you, that today would be a day that they would accept you to be Lord of their life, that their life would be completely transformed and changed from this moment forward, that they would move into the light and out of the darkness. More than just a a couple of words that they would pray, Father, but it would be a heart transformation. Lord, we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you're watching online or you're here and you need prayer, let us know. The word of God says to go to the elders, allow them to pray with you. And we are ready to do that. We will do that online. If you reach out here in person, they are in the back ready to pray with you. Masks on, uh, not wanting to spread sickness. But if you want prayer, don't miss an opportunity to be prayed with. As always, Go change your world. We will see you online Wednesday or next Sunday here in person.